workers work out of. It says Café uh, Maison Ronde, so that's half, the, uh, half of it is a café, and the other half. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. He was waiting for me. Yeah, he was sort of like looking around all over. Yeah. I'm Nathan. Hello. Good to meet you. You guys can, you think you can in the building? Yeah, I'm supposed to sign the lease, I think, tomorrow. Well, yeah, I just have to make sure that I can literally meet them. You think it will happen by winter? November. No. We're opening in November. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Word, word is out. Go for the Montrealers right the here. Eh? Huh? Go for Montrealers here. Yeah, absolutely. We're right across the street. You know where we're going, down right? Down here, they don't like us. Who doesn't like you? Like a um, population there. Then uh, people from down there. Yeah. I like uh, you. Places Arts area. They don't <laughs> like that one too. Yeah, well, we're going to be right across the street, so it's not far. The old miso the restaurant. Old yeah, the old McDonald's. It used to be a McDonald's, That's but a lot it was of miso. Memories. <laughs> huh? A lot of memories I have. Do you, really? Yeah. Okay. For Inuit, this has been traditionally actually a gathering place. There used to be an Inuit health center a block away. Uh, and they would come here to speak their language uh, and to see other Inuit, uh, share country food. So country food is food caught in the wild caribou, arctic char, seal. So and, things uh, they would bring down? Yeah, them, and so relatives from the north would often bring down uh, food caught in the wild, and they speak their language and, and, and eat it together. And it, it's amazing when Inuits share country food, uh, they come alive. It's, it's something to behold. Cabot Square for decades really has been a kind of Inuit meeting place. And so there is a sense in which it is their territory. It's It's a uh, a space that they've made their own and right now with all the condos going up literally on every side of the square uh, the pressure is has never been higher to make the Inuit disappear I have some McDonald's cards and so I uh, run over to McDonald's and it's a temporary measure but uh, maybe I'll run over and get some burgers and you notice you're coming back with them right David? yeah he knows they're gonna be here because they know I'm coming back okay, with burgers okay. How you doing, my man? This is the uh, pre-Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you. All right, my man. God bless you. You bet. Take God bless you. In the center of Cabot Square in downtown Montreal, there's a column topped with a statue of the spice trader John Cabot, who landed on Canada's coast more than 500 years ago. Sitting on the benches all around that statue today, unloved, unheated, unhoused, are the descendants of the people Cabot landed on, a semi-permanent population of homeless, mostly Inuit, people who live in or around the square. Canada might have a cuddly reputation down in the States, but there's trouble in this corner of the Commonwealth. As you'll hear in this episode, even in some of those moments where the country felt it was acting in good faith, it was just a few liberal sprinkles on top of the same old shit. The land theft, the political pillage, the cultural erasure, all of it's an ongoing multi-generational trauma, as my guest in this episode puts it. Her name is Nakuset a name that she had to reclaim after growing up as an adoptee in a Jewish family in Montreal. As a child, she was part of a generation of native children who were removed, often forcibly, from their homes and placed with white families in what's now known as the 60s scoop. As an adult, she is the wildly successful executive director of the Native Women's Shelter of Montreal. Together with one of her collaborators, David Chapman, whom you heard delivering McDonald's like some kind of hamburger Santa Claus, Nakuset is also the driving force behind the new Resilience Montreal Center, an innovative wellness center for vulnerable urban indigenous people. We recorded this episode pre-COVID, on Canadian Thanksgiving actually, which is just as rich with gouty revisionism as the American version. But I'm glad the episode is going wide today, February 22nd, 2021, because it's a big day for resilience, a big day for Nakuset. At a press conference in Montreal just an hour ago, 
the provincial government announced over $5 million in government funding and foundation grants for operations and a new permanent home for the Resilience Center. So Resilience, not even open when we recorded this episode, will now be an enduring landmark, a source of comfort and dignity for all of Indigenous Montreal. The path that Nakuset walked to get to this great day was an extraordinarily difficult one, as you'll hear in this episode. I should warn you that we talk about a lot of things here, including suicide. If you or someone you are close to are in distress, please take a moment to reach out for help. I will put some resources in the show notes. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Here we are. So tell me tell me what day it is. I mean, we're going to date this podcast because it won't be out a little while. But. Uh, today is Monday, but uh, in uh, Canada here, it's uh, officially Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And, and you've chosen to spend at least some part of this holy festival with me uh, talking instead of uh, gathering around Turkey and, and so on. As an indigenous person, as Cree, as someone who works uh, with these populations and this politics, like what is Thanksgiving? What is Canadian Thanksgiving to you? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's funny because my uh, son's uh, friend came by the other day and he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to like six Thanksgivings. I'm like, well, you better not kill any Indians when you do it. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, that's pretty much what it's all about, right? Settlers arrived here. We, you know, fed them. And then they had enough of us and, you know, sort of like everything changed. The whole dynamics of Canada changed. And, you know, although the settlers are still being thankful, I think this, you know, for indigenous people, this kind of holiday is very difficult on so many levels, right? So they call it like anti-colonial day or whatever. There's so many different uh, names for it. But I mean, I think holidays for indigenous people in general are tough because one thinks of Thanksgiving where you get together as a family and you sit around a table and you share food. But what if you don't have family and what if you don't have food and you can't actually be participatory in this holiday? And, you know, like I did make a turkey. Now, of course, I grew up a Jew, right? I was adopted by Jewish families. So, you know, it wasn't really our thing, right? We have like Yom Kippur. That was just a couple of days ago. So, Anyway, my son wanted turkey. I made a turkey. uh, And then after I ate the turkey (laughs) with my kids, and I was like feeling super guilty. I got Jewish guilt. Yeah. But afterwards, I just like, what about all these people in the street that are hungry? What about them? What are they doing? So, you know, carved up the turkey. And, uh, you know, David Chapman came with me. And we went down to Cabot Square and gave it out. You know? And it's kind of funny because that's, having the Indian show up and give it to the homeless. I mean, there was uh, two Inuit women and uh, and uh, three other non-Indigenous people. And it's like, look at us. We're still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Have we learned nothing? <laughs> but it's a good thing. It's a great it's a thing. Good thing. So when it's kind of, it's it's a good story because it's a, it's kind of about reclaiming, uh, reclaiming what could otherwise just be a full-on imposed piece of bullshit and just making something that's actually genuine and good out of it. The thing is that, I mean, honestly, you should see how their faces light up, you know? Would you like some, like, turkey and and mashed potatoes? Yeah, Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. And what is the impact of that? Right. You know, and how are, you know, if we go by, you know, the next day, you know, they'll remember that. Yeah, you're the one who came by with the turkey. That was really cool. Thank you. Yeah. Right? I mean... Especially especially on this day. Yeah. You can feed them and, and... their needs are 365, but on a day where everybody else is, the, yeah. the picture is that everybody's around the table. Yeah. Canadian Thanksgiving falls on Columbus Day in the United States, which mm. is now increasingly, and this is true in New York, uh, in, in my kids' uh, school calendars. And I think there are like five states now that for the first time this year are celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day mm-hmm. instead of Columbus Day, like New Mexico for the first time, which is super crazy because... Yeah. You would think it might have occurred to them by now, like Maine, Washington, D.C., Minnesota, I think Vermont. I don't know. Is that like symbolic and empty or is it 
is that a good start? Oh, for sure, it's a good start. I yeah. mean, I think that there's has to be sort of um, somebody who who pushes for that to happen, right? I mean, even in you know Canada, we have an Aboriginal Day or Indigenous Day or whatever you want to call it because they keep changing our you know our title or whatever our name is. But you know that's June twenty first, and um, and what's the basis for that date? Like. Well, I mean, it falls on the summer solstice, but I'm not exactly sure when, you know, the government decides that is our official day, but at some point they decided it was. And, um, you know, at Cabot Square for the last couple of years, I get funding from the city of Montreal to have a, like a concert. So I hire all kinds of indigenous uh, musicians and performers that come um, and they're there for about three to four hours and it's outside in the park. So those that could actually never be able to afford a ticket to any of these bands get it for free and we also have like the soapstone sculpture guys that come and do workshops and invite community organizations that show up and so people like regular people just arrive and they listen to the music and they see the pride of the people and they see the organizations that are affiliated with the population and they learn something. And, you know, there's even this guy uh, that I bring down from Arizona and he's a world-class hoop dancer. Mm. And he comes down with his two sons and it's like, blows everyone out of the park. I mean, we even have the daycares that show up just for it. It's really, it's really good. And every year it gets bigger and bigger. And this year we had like politicians that showed up. I don't really like politicians. I don't believe in them. But, you know, like... Like, like you don't like the Christmas, uh, you know, like Santa Claus don't believe in them or... Well, just, I don't know what they do for us, right? right really, what do they do for right, us? What is, but I figured that the only reason why they could get on stage to be like, happy Aboriginal day was if they did something. So there were two politicians that actually helped the Native Women's Shelter, and that was their ticket on. You help us, you give us some kind of, you know, financial help or, or advocacy then you get to speak. That's badass. You're like the bouncer of the like who gets to who gets to pretend they're they're on our side. Well, yeah, but yeah. You, they have to actually have to be authentically on our side, not yeah. pretend. So that we'll see what happens next year. Uh. Beware, all you virtue signaling, do nothing, <laughs> not quite real politicians. <laughs> Naku said, "Is you're on you're on her list." Mm. And I guess that's part of, you know, it's not just a personal thing that can make Thanksgiving difficult and your whoever, you know, whatever your life situation or circumstances, but it is that political thing like, you know, these holidays have power, right? There's like, I mean, that's what's so crazy about Columbus Day and the fact that however many states are now calling it Indigenous Day, there's still more states that call it Columbus Day and that's just like straight up genocide day. Mm -hmm. And we already have another one of those in Thanksgiving, you know, where yeah. we obliquely commemorate and celebrate genocide. Yeah. So it's like there is a power to uh, the naming, I guess, um, in those things. And then if that also coincides with some government money to throw a great concert and be able to celebrate your friends and call out by their conspicuous absence your not friends, then, then there's something to it. But it's also about, you know, education. Because even though, you know, there are people that know that Aboriginal Day is June 21st, most people don't, right? So why aren't the elementary schools participating in it? Usually it's the last day of school anyways, but it's not acknowledged at any of the elementary, high schools, some of the universities. So we do a lot of uh, media to make sure that people are aware of this day. I want my kids, you know, my kids are Cree. I want them to know um, that this is their day, you know, and at some point, you know, it's it's really difficult because in particularly Quebec, the uh, government kind of ignores all the uh, indigenous people. So if we have 11 nations of Quebec, you wouldn't, if you ask someone on the street, like go outside and ask how many nations, they'll be like, what? <laughs> Mohawk, is that it? Like, they don't know. Why don't you know? Why? So I guess I have, you gotta, you have to kind of choose your battles in terms of how you're going to educate. But when it's something where you have music and, and art and um, people celebrating, that's a beginning. There's so much work to do, but at least that's a start. And, you know, I won't be doing it forever. Eventually, someone else will continue doing it. I'm not like a young chick there. Like, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it as long as I can. And it's not like the government just gives me money. I have to apply for money, fill out paperwork, make sure that we have all the insurance and liabilities. And then I literally have to go in front of a jury. Et en français, in French, I have to explain why 
for Aboriginal Day we would do such a thing. And mm. one year, one of the jury members said, well, do you really think that's the appropriate thing is to like, um, you know, have a concert? Like, why don't you help the people? And I had, uh, my, I hire a uh, psychologist at the shelter that also speaks perfect French. So she answered that. Uh-huh. She's like, 24-7, that's all we do is help the people. Don't we get one day to celebrate? Like, one day. Well, you know? and also that idea that this is something that you had said in, in I think, one of your uh, talks that I'll, I'll put in the show notes, but that indigenous people only make the news through the four Ds, right? It's like drunk, drumming, dancing, or dead. Yep. And it feels like part of having power is having the right to be fully rounded people who might also like to throw a concert and have a celebration or yeah. a celebratory day. Yeah. And I, I would assume that that's part of your constant battle is like both getting resources for the very dire need mm-hmm. and also telling, you know, the very tough stories, including your own. But but having people appreciate that that there's a lot of joy and that good cultural capital that's still left in these communities. Yeah. And, and amazing talent and amazing resilience because people don't understand where we came from and everything that we've been through. People don't know about the Indian Act. They you know, a little bit about residential school. Almost nobody knows anything about the 60s scoop and the fact that it continues today. It doesn't just end because the policy, you know, was was removed. The actions continue. So, yeah. It is a constant theme, just a constant source of astoundment and bewilderment for me that, you know, we have these same issues in the States with, uh, with, with race um, just on the African-American side and just how people think, well, because everybody's equal before the law now that somehow and you know that 65 was so long ago and not realizing that you know this shit is like it's like yesterday Mm -hmm. and it's also going to be tomorrow if you don't even stop to look at it but that seems like a good a good moment to uh to talk about your story which began not in quebec but like three thousand kilometers away in in saskatchewan like uh, I was in uh, Thompson, Manitoba. That's where I was born. My community is Saskatchewan. Okay. But, you know, that's where my band is. But my mother moved around a lot, so she ended up in Thompson, Manitoba. So tell me tell me about your life story and particularly the, those that early uh, beginning because it, it runs into all these policies that people don't know about. Okay, so first my mother went to the Prince Albert Residential School, um, and that really affected her. So she wasn't really... Um, able to bring up children, but she had like seven children. And and these residential schools, and again, just for me as an American, knowing far less about this than I should, and far less even about the Canadian versions uh, of these things, but describe what the residential school system was and what, what was its aim. Mm, well, Oy, that's a long story. The uh, It's a government policy that the um, government and churches implemented Really, I think they started like in the late uh, 1800s. So after they started creating all the treaties with all the different uh, nations and started taking all our lands and basically through the Indian Act, we weren't allowed to actually be Indians. You'd have to read it to see the last thing that they decided to do is create residential schools. So these schools you had to go to um, and if you didn't give up your kids, you were arrested and they would basically go in with buses and just grab all the children and bring them far away to schools. Not like schools that were close by, but super far away because it's harder to run back home. Intentionally. Yeah. And there they weren't allowed to have anything to do with their culture, given new names, um, you know, cut off all their hair, given really crappy food. It wasn't really about education. What it was about was assimilation because when you finish residential schools, you lost your Indian status. So you became like... Wow, it's yeah. just like an absolute erasure. Yeah, absolutely, totally. Now, the thing is, I'm from uh, Treaty 6, so I get $5 a year for being an Indian. That was the agreement with, with my chief and, and you know, the, the queen. And um, because I get $5 for being an Indian, it means that everyone in my band is allowed this money. There's a pot of money that the government is supposed to hold on to and slowly dole it out to everyone. But if you go to residential school, you lose that $5. You lose your land. You lose your title. You lose all your um, sort of benefits that we get. 
Like I get my teeth cleaned and I get eyeglasses. I get 10 sessions with a psychologist. And these are ongoing benefits. Yes. Because basically we, we took everything and you get your teeth cleaned. Isn't that a great deal? Yay. I also get post-secondary education, right? So I was able to go and once I got my Indian status, I was able to go back uh, to school and get an education. But back to residential school, once um, that was really, it was assimilation policy so you lose your title of being indigenous or you know you lose your treaty rights um you get rid of the language the culture and everything else and it was basically beaten out of the children i mean it was there are horror stories among horror stories that happen at residential school and they lasted almost 200 years so when we talk about intergenerational trauma this is the generation. So even though I didn't go to residential school, I was intergenerationally traumatized. And my mother wasn't able to bring up her kids because of what happened at residential school. And her coping mechanism was to drink and to go party and, you know, to not have any healthy relationships. So we all have pretty much different fathers. And, you know, I was in Thompson with my older sister, Sonia, and uh, my mother used to leave us for days to ourselves and Sonia was really cool because she was able to like find a way to feed us and make all these crazy like food like crackers and like you know condensed milk and an egg and I don't know I mean it's amazing I'm alive but and and you say older sister but she was three years older this yeah is not she like, was six and this I was not three much older that's no. still a very very young child yeah, yeah but she was she felt very responsible for me and then eventually uh the police came with the social workers and took us away and, and brought us to a foster home. And I think we moved around from foster home to foster home and we were always together, which was which was great, you know. But they started creating the AIM Adopt an Indian or Metis program. And because I was three and didn't have much, I guess, you know, sort of baggage, I was considered adoptable. And they took my picture and brought it here to Montreal in Jewish Family Services. They put me like in a catalog. Just where somebody could shop visually. Well, all the Jewish community would go because they got rid of all the other children and were only giving out indigenous kids. It was a policy that happened across Canada. So everyone in the 70s, that was the new policy. We're only giving out native kids. Forget the white kids for the moment. Only native kids. And they did it through like newspaper clippings and all that. I mean, and I can sort of like, I can almost feel as a... uh as a white man, I can almost feel the self-congratulation that mm. that they must have uh, felt while adopting this, you know, progressive policy of of, of Indians only. It's considered a mitzvah. You take the kid, you know, you're doing a good deed for them. You're going to give them a good life. They'll have clean water and they'll have food and... You know, sort of, they bought into that whole aspect, but they never actually addressed the cultural differences. So when I, when I was taken away and brought here overnight, um, you know, it was like, don't tell them they're native, don't tell them anything about who, where they're from, don't tell them they're anything. Just, you know, I was put into a mikvah and, you know, I was instant Jew. Went to Hebrew school, I can literally speak more Hebrew than I can speak Cree and brought up, but looking very different, right? I mean, I had a blonde brother and a blonde sister. It was super obvious that I wasn't part of the family. And for whatever reason, I already had a cultural pride at the age of three where I was telling everyone I lived in a teepee. And I'm not sure where I, got, I came up with that, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, and But your, your adopted parents told you to tell people that you were Israeli. Yes. As to explain your yes. dark hair, and, yeah. you know, we have one Sephardic child yes. and two Ashkenazis <laughs> or something. But even at that age, uh, and at least in your telling, you were like, no, thank no. you. No, because I, I had some memories. I didn't have a lot of memories, right? But I had some. Whereas my sister woke up the next morning and saw that I was gone and it just, it destroyed her. She was like, where'd she go? She thought that maybe our mother came and picked me up and brought me back home and left Sonia in the, in the foster home. But, you know, um, later on when she was reunited with my, with my mother and noticed I wasn't there, kept looking for me. And my mother didn't seem to know where I was. And my sister ended up bouncing around from one place to another, uh, where it'd be foster home, group home, back to my mother on the streets, foster home, group home. That's how she spent like the next, you know, I don't know how many like 12 or 13 years of her life before she was just sort of autonomous and was on her own, but always searching for me and even writing letters and, you know, trying to sit, trying to find me. Whereas I had a small inkling of her, but no real memories. 
And then, sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, obviously, we want to talk uh, about about her and, and your broader family, but I'm 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 interested in just you know how you feel about your adoptive parents now at this point. Is this a family show? No, <laughs> uh, I I changed my name. You know, it was a, the fact that you know Sonia literally wrote letters to. Um, my parents when I was like they started receiving them when I was like 15 and just ripped them up like they didn't want me to have anything to do with my indigenous family they didn't want they really felt like uh, native people were the dregs of society and that I would be I would almost be insulting them by returning to the community they're not living you know the lifestyle that they were providing for me it was like a slap in the face so there was a bit of narcissism in some way about kind of cultural narcissism that kept them feeling like that was I mean did they think it was the best thing for you yes but they that did. was the thing with the aim program it was better for all of us right and this is why the social workers took us is because of like poverty issues so it doesn't matter what your culture is or the beauty or strength of it you know, you don't have running water. We're taking your kids. Really, it was, it and and the thing is that you know, if the government shoves us onto these tiny little reservations and makes us live there and doesn't give us clean water or housing or anything, and then takes our children later on because because of the poverty that they put us in, it's like a double edged sword. So we're always sort of getting screwed. So. That was the policy, and this is why in Canada, you know, Carolyn Bennett was like, and she's like indigenous services, like the woman who speaks for us. You're, you're making a, a incredulous face. Yes, well, because you know, and it, air quotes. Oy, it's it's Indian affairs, right? They used to call it Indian affairs and Aboriginal services. Now it's indigenous services, and and she's the queen of it, right? She's the one. Who, who speaks for us and she decided to give like you know 805 million dollars for the 60 scoop so you have to like sign up and you get anywhere between 25 and 50 thousand dollars for being part of the 60 scoop which is like three dollars a day for having your whole culture taken away right and all your family and all your everything so on top of the five dollars a day for having no more land oh no i got my five dollars back okay i got it back the the sixty scoop refers to this aim period where they were adopting out. Uh, well, literally indigenous. scooping the kids out of the community yeah. and putting them into white families, and they did in the, in the United States as well. So it was pretty much across the board. So Canadian families uh, or Canadian indigenous kids that had social workers that found links to the United States got anywhere between five thousand and twenty thousand dollars per child. So there's a huge, like, there's a book called Stolen from Our Embrace by Ernie Cray and Suzanne Fournier. And it says that you could actually fill up the entire city of Seattle with all the indigenous kids from Canada that were sent to the States. Jesus. Yeah. I didn't make it up, man. Uh, no. And, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm uh, as, as often happens, just kind of uh, a little shocked at my own ignorance. Mm. Because that's not, I mean, certainly that phrase, 60 scoop, is nothing I'd heard before, nothing I was particularly aware of um, as, as, a, uh, as a United States phenomenon. Well, the government doesn't want to brag about what they did, right? It's a bad stain on their face, and they don't want to, like, oh, we were really horrible. I mean, here in Montreal, there was this guy who used to put smallpox in blankets, and uh, they just changed the street sign. Like that was like they named a street after him. Yeah. And um, they just changed it to like an indigenous name. But most people don't really get that this was the guy that started chemical warfare against indigenous people. It's you, you, people that like killed Indians were like put on a platform. Yay. You mean like literally on a platform, like wow, and with a big sign. statue yes, on top of it? Yes, John A. McDonald. He was the one who started residential schools, right? He did all kinds of stuff. And there's that here in Montreal, he always gets, you know, uh, paint thrown at him and like on a weekly basis almost. <laughs> like people are always, you he's, know, protesting He's got a few him. different camps of uh, detractors. Yeah, I and I'm guess. always like, it wasn't me, man. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the short list. The usual suspects. <laughs> Um, so, so the, the 60 scoop was essentially residential schools in a new form. It's just this way of kind of dispersing and erasing. <clears throat> yeah, it was different because residential schools, at least, you know, who your parents were and where your community was and you got to go back in the summertime where a 60 scoop, your identity is erased and all your treaties, culture, everything. And you just sort of become, you know, like I was expected to be a nice Jewish girl. 
didn't work out so good. Well, I still think I might be. I don't know. I, I noticed, uh, you know, you dropped a shalom in your email. You yeah, can, yeah. You can still oi, you know, as you go through there. You had also talked about your bully, your grandmother, as someone who stood out for kind of kindness and general belief and support in you. Um, but, yeah, what is, I mean, when you when you took back your name and, and got rid of your adoptive name, like what else, what else did you leave behind? Or are there things that just kind of stick with you from having had this kind of dual childhood? So that's a lot of questions. Yeah, it's a lot of questions. How Jewish are you? How Jewish am I? (laughs) I mean, where do you put that in your, in yourself and your identity? The thing is that like, I'm not a practicing Jew. So I know people are always like, come over for Rosh Hashanah. And I don't really want to go. <laughs> I didn't like it when I was, yeah. you know, a teenager and had to sit through like, you know, all these, you know, these things. I have a definite appreciation for the Jewish culture, for sure. It's all I know. It's what I grew up in. It's who I am. I can't pretend that I'm not. It's, I meet other Native people and they're like, you're so Jewish. I'm like, I can't help it. I can't help it. But then I meet Jewish people and they're like, you're not one of us. You must so, be Israeli. No, I never get that, you know, and also like at this point, you know, I mean, I walk around like a Christmas tree. I always have something very native on me in case you didn't get it. I am indigenous, my purse or something I put in my hair. I mean, I try to be as obvious that I'm not like cultural pride. That started despite your parents' best efforts. That started when you were a kid. You said you were putting on jeans just because it had like a Buffalo logo or something. Yeah, 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 Cherokee was the name of the jeans, yeah. So so somehow, like, how did that stick? Was it just this residual from your memories or was later on you would end up going to school with Mohawks? Yeah. Which was your first like real live? Yeah, yeah. um, How did that evolve for you? Like... You know, it's funny because I think that I had a lot of trauma in the first three years of my life before I was adopted. And um, for whatever reason, my mind sort of protects me and it doesn't give me all the, um, doesn't release all the memories. But I have some. I have a couple. But there's something about the cultural pride that was always there. And then being adopted, it's almost like a a fight because, you know, there was a time when I dyed my hair blonde because I didn't want to be uh, recognized as native. But when I heard the misconceptions about indigenous people, you know, and how we were like, you open a sociology book and it talks about, you know, the highest death rate and suicide rate. And I could never really see myself as, or recognize myself as these statistics. I knew that there was something, that I was something more than just a number on a piece of paper. So I guess just, it's something that's sort of, in my DNA, right? And um, I would always gravitate towards things that had an indigenous logo or or the buffalo or uh, music or seeing someone on TV. I mean, you barely saw that except for the cowboy and Indian movies. But, you know, there was a show called The Beachcombers and there was a native guy named Jesse. I was like, oh my God, and he was beautiful. I was like, hey, my people. But when I went to this school, you know, and already hearing about sort of not so great stories about indigenous people. And then this bus from Gunawage would show up and all these Mohawk kids would come out and they were like beautiful and they had a really interesting uh, um, accent and um, they knew their language and their culture. It's like a sponge. It's like, tell me everything. Even though I was Cree, I'm like, tell me everything. And it's always been uh, the culture that I'm closest to because in proximity. So I've gone to ceremonies and I've been to the longhouses. I've been to the powwows there. I really sort of became kind of like a born again Indian. And right. again, also that movie Dances with Wolves, that just threw me over the edge. That was it. What edge? Well, I mean, I was sort of like, I don't know. I don't know where, I don't know if I belong in the white world and I should just, you know, not try to get my Indian status and just, you know, not fight for my rights and just absorb into society. Or should I, you know, try to learn more about my culture? And because Dances with Wolves is about like Plains Indians and that's what I am. And I saw it and I saw the, you know, the film, which a lot of Native people don't like because it's almost like we're the tits and ass of the film, right? Kevin Costner is like the, the you know, the, the leader or whatever. But anyway. Um, that's a very succinct movie review, but yes. <laughs> I, 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 okay. But. but just the way that, you know, Indigenous people got along with each other and had like different roles in society and respected one another. And then when I was like 22, I started working in Native films. I worked in a film called Squanto and I found the exact same thing. 
Like the native people were so warm. And when I explained to them that as part of the 60s coup, I was adopted, instead of them saying, oh, you're one of those, they were like, we've been looking for kids like you. You know, so I felt like an instant, like welcoming. And once I was welcomed, I was like, okay, what can I do now? Also, there was this, um, I went out with this Mohawk guy when I was in my 20s, and his grandmother was married to X early, and she was the one who changed Bill C-31. So, she's in the Indian Act, if you're an indigenous woman who marries a white man, you lose your Indian status like that, wow. and all your children lose their Indian status. But if you're a native man who marries a white woman, she becomes an instant Indian, and so do all her white kids. So Mary X Early married this, you know, this, this Irish guy, left the community, went to New York City. He passed away. She comes back to Gunawaga, and they're like, I'm sorry, but according to the Indian Act, you're not allowed back here. Get out. She's like, what? But I see my neighbors all married to white women, and they can all stay, and that's not fair. Took and that's what the Mohawk years. community had done to her. Yes, that's yeah. what her own community, because a lot of communities, they really followed the Indian Act like crazy. But after 20 years... She finally uh, went to the UN and they recognized that what they're doing is discriminatory. And the UN turned to Canada and was like, Canada, really? This is what you're doing? They're like, oh, yeah, okay. So Bill C-31 was able, she was able to get her status reinstated and for her children and for everyone else. So anyways, all to say, I met her when I was like in my 20s. I was dating her grandson, married to Axe Early. Yeah. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I just started having that indigenous pride. I'm like, what am I going to do? And when I realized that she was like in her, in her 60s when she started this fight, like she was not a, a young woman, I was like, okay, I'm going to change a lot. And she was my role model. So everything that I do, I try to make as most impact as I can for that next generation. So anyway, yeah, I, mean, I talk too much. No, there's a, lot to, there's a lot to say. And I imagine one of the, one of the sort of... Um, uh, cruelties of, of choosing activism in this field is that you're not running short of targets, right? And even when people feel, you know, like there's been progress made, and I'm sure that, again, that kind of self-congratulatory stance of progressive, you know, kind of white society is like, hey, we're so much better than we were, but there's got to be so much to do still, and so many, like, you know, misconceptions to unpack and so much bullshit to deal with. Like activism on indigenous issues feels like an, a, a bottomless yeah. opportunity. Yeah. So I try, to, I try to think small. I think just about um, the impacts here in Montreal because I live here. So I can't like go to Attawapiskat and, you know, get them clean water. Or if I have some time, maybe I can. Right. I mean, yeah. it's not so hard to do that. I don't know why they can't do that. But anyway, but I try to focus on what is happening here in Montreal and how it's affecting. So because I run the Native Women's Shelter and because of all the different systemic issues the women come in with, I have to try to sort of target each and every one of them. So and, and it's that I guess the reason why you didn't go back to Saskatchewan or Manitoba um, was because you had then formed this this uh, affinity and this kind of uh, closeness with the with the Mohawk community and and the culture here, or did you always why why stay here and and fight this fight? Um, because once I got you know, all right, I know I'm all over the place, but my it was my bubby that helped me get my Indian status back. Is my bubby who helped me reunite with my family? So that's when I met Sonia. And my mother and a couple of brothers and and all. What 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 was involved in that? How how difficult was it, or was it just a matter of saying, you know, your parents have been ripping up a lot of letters. Let's go find them. Yeah, a little, mostly that, you know. And it was actually other relatives that helped me um, figure that out because, uh, like, my I'm originally Margaret Murray and my sister Sonia Murray, and we were part of um, John Murray's estate. He had married my mother. Janet Murray. And uh, my parents had been receiving notifications that I was going to receive something from his estate when I turned 21. For whatever reason, Sonia got when she was 18. But when she got it, she started to know, she saw my name on the list. She's like, there she is. And she called the um, the trust company and said, I, I need to get in touch with her. And they're like, well, we can't give your address. But if you give us a letter, we'll mail it to her. And that's what she was doing. She was writing all these letters to me. And my parents were freaking out. They're like, oh, my God, rip them up. And don't, we're not going to tell them. And they literally told me that 
John Murray was just a, um, a business partner of my father's. And I needed to sign these papers and I needed to sign the money over to them. And I was like, well, you never gave me anything. I left home at 18 with nothing. I'm like, all of a sudden I'm going to get money? Sure. I don't expect my parents to lie to me. And because of that lie, we don't really talk to each other anymore. There's really no point in it. But my- Yeah, that story just seemed like it just flipped because, you know, whatever good intentions might have been animating their original intent, this is now, this is deeply fucked up. And I'm yeah. really sorry to hear that. But yeah. that's like, that's hard to imagine what that must have been like for you to realize that they're, you know, just building this entire cocoon around your own personal life. Yeah. But the good thing was that I found my sister. So the thing was that I was super close with my bubby and she always expected that I would do great things. And I wasn't sure. I was really sort of like walking the edge there, not sure, you know, whether or not I was going to, you know, become a statistic, you know, like a drug addict and a prostitute that my parents used to tell me I was going to be because I'm indigenous. Or if I was going to, you know, just marry into like white society. And I don't I didn't know where I was going, but she got cancer, my bubby. And she was like the best, closest person that just gave me 100% unconditional love. And she said um, that she knew she had cancer and she was afraid that when she died, I would have nobody. So she's like, we need to help you find your way home. So she was the one who, when I got all those papers from the, the estate, it had addresses of all my um, siblings, and I wrote letters to all of them explaining who I was, and one of the siblings remembered me. So that's how I was able to get back. And then my, um, my bubby sent me, gave me a, a, a plane ticket and said, go. And that's when I got reunited with my family. And that kind of changed everything because then the relationship that um, I had with Sonia, in a way, it kind of... It kind of, not replaced, but the unconditional love I had from my bubby, then I got from Sonia. So, from the time that we met until she died, we kind of went on this path together where we were going to share about our stories and about who we are and um, the difficulties that faced indigenous people, especially through the 60s scoop and the impacts. And um, she was always like my biggest fighter. Like literally when I met her, she said to me, you know, it took a lot of beatings for you when you were a child, eh? I was like, thank you. Like, you don't even know how to respond to that. But that is, that is the reality. Um, and that was the role that she had always yeah, played. Yeah, she was always my protector. And she became my protector afterwards. So even though I needed to stay in Montreal because of the 60 Scoop, there were all those that were still on the streets that were part of the 60 Scoop. I'm like, how come I'm working and I'm able to, you know, find my path when I see everyone else? You know, they say like 85% of um, people from the 60s scoop, like the relationship failed and people ended up on the streets, in jails, or dying, right? And I'm like, how come I'm one of those people that I'm able to sort of move forward through all these, all these hardship? 85%? Yeah. That's astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. Like all the Jewish Indians that I know, there's like three of us that are okay. The rest of them are still struggling, you know? So... I just felt like, okay, well, you know, I don't have, I don't know how long I have on this earth. You know, Mary 2X early was one of my, um, you know, role models. You know, meeting my sister, we were sort of like on the, on, on a mission to like educate. So that's what we started to do. And then I was able to create programs to help indigenous people that are on the streets so that they could also find their way because no one was doing it for them. If you wait for the government to do it, it's never going to happen. So using my education and, you know, I'm working at the shelter now 20 years, so it doesn't just happen overnight. It's, you know, it's a lot of, oh, she's at the door again. I'll just give her the money already because we don't want to talk to her anymore, (laughs) you know. Um, But that's, And and Sonia was a part of that, a part of that process for you to learn, like, what the needs are and what it looks like from the other side or... Um, Well, not necessarily. Sonia was more of my cheerleader or my sort of, uh, you know, 
All right, so when we talk about um, intergenerational trauma, for whatever reason, I just decided from like, you know, my mid-20s that I wasn't going to be like another statistic in terms of I'm not going to drink alcohol, I'm not going to do drugs, I'm not going to do any of these things. But my sister emulated my mother's behavior and ended up losing her kids. Not losing, she gave them away. But she knew that she couldn't handle them, that she partied a lot, that she did the exact same behavior. But by the time we started to um, meet, you know, um, over the years, she, she, she had the intentions of changing her way, but because of addiction, it's, it's much harder. So um, we were always trying to share our stories and, and every time I came up with like a, an initiative, she would back me 100%. So she was that support person and I didn't have any other support person like in this whole freaking world. I had no one except for her. So that's where she was to me and I was just trying to, you know, live in Montreal and make sure that there were better working relationships with youth protection, better working relationships with the police, with homelessness, just like everything that I saw that when the women come through the doors of the Native Women's Shelter they were facing that we could try to make it easier for them. So one of the things that you had said about uh, your sister was that she was the one who remembered, um, mm. you know, f- through her age difference and also maybe just who she was that, and that that was for you felt like one of the one of the things that made it impossible for her to to be. Do you I mean, I don't know what what do you feel about the path that her life took and and who who do you call to account for that? <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, intergenerational trauma is really, it's a bitch, right? So um, she, throughout her whole life, dealt with um, enormous amount of depression and suicide ideation and um, was actually in, uh, like, different hospitals or institutions for a while throughout her life. Um, I think that finding, finding me for whatever reason, sort of lifted her. But when we found Rose, my sister in, uh, in Austria, that just brought her way down. It released a whole group of, of memories that I guess she had been stifling. I think the 60s scoop, that the announcement that people would start getting money also was a real uh, hardship for her because the government decided that you could only get monies from the 60 scoop if you were adopted, but the 60 scoop also had a huge group of people that were in foster care, but the criteria was adoption. She wasn't adopted and she had an absolutely horrific life. So I actually have like a survivor's guilt. And, um, and the fact that, that by this fiat, she was not recognized and her pain wasn't recognized, but yours was. Yep. Um, so it's, and then finding your sister, Rose, was it just the act of remembering and having to kind of go through and rehash all those things again? Yeah. Because you know, Sonia lost me when she was six, and then she lost Rose when she was 10. So she was like, why does everybody leave? <laughs> so, and then she found it really difficult to have children and relate to them properly. So she didn't know how to, she, she didn't, when you don't have role models for like, um, healthy behavior it's hard and she didn't have that so she also did what my mother had done and then felt an enormous amount of guilt I mean she told her daughter Sarah because when Sarah would like yell at her when she was an adult and say you know why did you send me away she said to her and she was super brave she was like if I would have kept you I would have killed you like there's so much rage in her so I think that rage bubbles up. I think the the way the government sort of decides who's eligible and who's not eligible was a slap in the face to her. At the time, she uh, didn't have a job. And even though she was, she had an enormous amount of work experience, you know, she was like cleaning houses for a living. And when she found out she couldn't get the money, she just decided that was it. And she did this really kind of hard thing where she was like, she sent me this video. <clears throat> and the video was like, well, if you receive this video, it's because I'm dead. She left me like this 10-minute video. 
Um, and in the video, she said at the end, you know, what I want you to do is to tell people about our experience, what it's like to be part of the 60 Scoop, how it screws everybody up, how it's like you need to use your voice. And I was thinking, well, I don't want to use my voice. I'd rather just have you as my sister. Like, And then I spent two days trying to um, negotiate because after she sent it, she didn't actually kill herself. So we wrote back and forth and, you know, I called her children and I was like, call the, you know, call an ambulance, like do something because I can't physically be in Winnipeg to help her. And then I was trying to give her all kinds of tools. And then she sent an, a text saying, um, I love you on a Monday night. And I almost wrote, don't do anything stupid. But she decided that she didn't want to be here anymore. So that was, um, that was really hard. And I did share the story because I felt that was her last wish and I should honor her wish. And I met with a reporter, Ainsley from CBC and, um, I wanted Sonia to look really strong in the story, so I made sure she did a lot of research on her, but also research 60 Scoop, and also to look more at the systemic issue of currently what's happening now, what happened at the 60 Scoop, and what is happening now, and how is it different, and to almost like open sort of the floodgates of what is really going on, so to have something proactive in the story, and not just my sister as another suicide, you know, sort of um, statistic. Right. And I, I talked about sociology and the statistics. I'm like, great, we got another one. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry for that story, especially not just obviously for having lost your sister that way, but you know, the, the kind of weight that that puts on you, that you, you do what you've been doing, which is to tell that story. And, and that's gotta be an incredibly difficult thing. I saw the, the CBC documentary, uh, this kind of mini doc about it. And one thing that struck me about that piece was that at the end, they had uh, you know a sort of a, a title screen about where to get resources for suicide. But it doesn't. I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel this way. Something in some ways about Tony's story too is it's just like it's not. It's not just a suicide prevention fable, you know. And and for for you, it's like her story is so tied into the the politics of what happened and and the destruction of the families and it just seemed it seems sort of half halfway there to to have a title screen about suicide prevention but not have any call to action about what to do <laughs> about you know indigenous families and issues and the things that you actually work on in your daily life that is an excellent point you know it's funny because the cbc reporter she ended up winning two awards for that let's take her awards away <laughs> I mean, Sorry. it's it, it it's beautiful. We'll, I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's it's affecting. It's moving, but it feels it it feels like that's half the that's half the remedy. Well, the good thing is that when she wrote the article, also you know she had another one about youth protection right now, and that the Inuit children that are currently in care are not allowed to speak their language. That is still a thing. Yes. And because of her story, the Human Rights Commission is doing an investigation into that. So I'm as happy about that. There is something proactive. Um, but yes, that's what I said about the 60s. It's like residential school, you weren't allowed to speak your language. 60s scoop ended, but our kids are apprehended at an alarming rate. And we're still not allowed to have any cultural pride or speak the language. And there are the stupid excuses youth protection would give is like, well, what if they're talking about suicide? Well, then you get a freaking interpreter to come in and to listen to what they're saying, if that's what you're afraid of. And but a, don't tell them they can't speak their language. What a fucking dim uh, perspective on what the language can do and what it would be used for. Yeah, really. <laughs> that's shocking. I mean, and I guess that's uh, that's part of the, the thing that uh, I'll, I'll be weary for you since you don't seem to, you know, have that gear. But just even, even the parts when you were talking in, in one of the talks you gave about just understanding how indigenous people look at and respond to police mm. because of their history. You just realize like once you st stop the current crimes against, you know, these communities and the, the, you know, the policies that are so discriminatory, just realizing how much you're going to have to unpack over the generations to, to get rid of all of these, uh, you know, all of these kind of ongoing 
reasons why they are not fitting well into society as it's put now. And CBC just came out with a story last week about the fact that, well, actually it was all the newspapers, that they had an independent uh, person look into how the Montreal police treat racial profiling or, or address it or whatever you want to call it. And they said 11, indigenous women are 11 times more likely to be racial profiled than any other culture. So I was like, yeah, okay, I knew that, but yay. <laughs> that somebody's putting a number or a voice yes. to it. Yeah, yeah. But, but 11 times more likely. So... It's almost sometimes you're happy to have the number out there, and then you're also like, damn. like It's like t- two steps forward, one step back, you know? And I have, you know, I signed an agreement with the police in 2015 saying we're going to have a better working relationship, and it's, it's an uphill battle, you know? And they ended up saying that there is no racial profiling, the, the SPVM, until this independent person was like, uh, yeah, actually, there's a lot of it, and you need to do better. And now they're saying, okay, well, yeah, in March, we'll do something. March? <laughs> like, it's what? It's like free season on indigenous people until March? Right. Like, what are you talking about, right? So I'm often a critic about the police. I'm often a critic about it. You know, like, I tell it like it is. I'm not going to pretend that, you know, youth protection is doing a better job or the police are doing a better job. Like... It is exactly what it is, and people need to know, and, and I need to address it every chance that I get. Otherwise, like, what's the point? What's the point of all of this? What's the point of being adopted and put into this family and taken away from, you know, my indigenous family and losing my sister if I can't try to make it better? I kind of feel like I'm still on that mission, and, you know, Sonia watches from above and or below. I don't know. Sorry. We're, we're, where, wherever, wherever she is. Well, we're on the 12th floor in this Sorry. hotel, so who knows? Um, so tell me about, speaking of that mission, like what what is Cabot Square and what does it mean to a population that doesn't have an urban reserve, as you say, here in Montreal? Okay, well, sometimes I sit in these meetings. You know, I'm an executive director now for, I don't know, 16, 17 years at the Native Women's Shelter. I get invited to a lot of meetings. And one of these meetings I went to said that they're revitalizing the area, that they're putting up all these brand new condos, and that um, the population that's currently in the park uh, is a deterrent, and that uh, we need to find a new solution. And I'm the only indigenous person at this meeting, and they're like, we're going to put the indigenous people in a parking lot where the Omer de Serre was, which is sort of like a store that has, you know, uh, art supplies. And I was like, really? No, 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 no. So I went back and I spoke to this wonderful, um, brilliant woman named Vivian Carley, who's non-indigenous, but she's a genius. And together we worked with the Justice Committee and we created... A different plan which would be keep the people in the park have support services in the park and eventually we did the cultural activities and that took almost six years to get off the ground because the city was like well it's too expensive and i don't know if it's going to work and maybe you need to do a study so we eventually did a study it took us six months and basically it said hire outreach workers and i'm like man i told you this a long time ago like yeah. do it and and probably pay them using the money that you spent on that study <sighs> To start with. Yeah, no, they paid for it. We got Indian Affairs and SA, Secretary de Zafalhaktakdan in the city. They all threw in money together. But How big is the population in Cabot Square? Oh, God, I don't know. The thing is that people come in and out all day long, right? right? So and it's, it's hard to say, but there is a large population of indigenous um, people. And, and, it's, and, and it's the center, I mean, if of, yeah. of the community. Yeah, here. the thing is that there used to be a children's hospital, so a lot of the Inuit families that don't have... Um, hospitals in the community that have to fly out um, to uh, Montreal would hang around that area because they were, you know, maybe having a cigarette break or I don't know what, but they would just kind of hang out in that area. But if I ever want to meet anyone indigenous, I know I can go there and see a familiar face. So it just sort of became kind of like an urban center for indigenous people for, you know, 20, 30 years now. So it's just that people that were moving into these really expensive condos didn't want to see that, those faces when they came in. And also a lot of the people that are there, they're there because there's nowhere else for them to go. And, right. and you know, there's there's a bit of a, well, right now there's a there's a big crisis at the park, but there was, um, it's, it's always been a place where, I don't know, it's hard to say. It, it depends on 
the actual person and who they meet. So if, if they bump into someone who's a predator, they're going to become victimized and they're going to be, you know, not really in a very good place. And sometimes people go through just to kind of visit friends or relatives. So it, it's really hard to sort of say who's there. It's always different. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was obviously a, a problem. So eventually, through uh, getting funding through the city of Montreal, we created the Cabot Square Project, where we had two outreach workers that are in the park. And you know, six years ago, I asked to have a mediator, which is someone who would be at the park that if anyone um, was completely under the influence or if there were any physical fights, that they would step in and help those people to the appropriate um, service as opposed to getting arrested because that's what happens. Police come by and they arrest and arrest, arrest, and everyone is gone, right? So the mediators just came in this summer because now there used to be um, a shelter called the Open Door that was in the area for, I don't know, probably about 30 years or something like that. And it closed and all the essential services that they gave were gone. And then there were 14 deaths in the last, uh, I guess, since December. 14 deaths 14 since deaths. December. Yeah. And most of them indigenous people. Jesus. So I have been very vocal about wanting to uh, do something about it. And one of the things that I did was uh, speak to a reporter named Christopher Curtis, who started to do a series of stories on it. And we were able to get meteors, mediators almost because of the public shame of it, not because of, oh, we really think we want to help the people. Right. It's almost like, oh, you made a public darn. Better give you some money now. So they did. Thank you very much, Ville de Montréal. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But... But that that's the price for that cash. is Yeah. And is, the thing is that they hired one mediator and then they needed another one. And now I have three of them because the crisis is so bad and it is a band-aid. It's not what yeah. we need. We need some place where they can sleep, something, a place where they can eat and a place that's open on weekends and a place that, you know, is open in the evenings and there's nothing. So we're going to open something next month. Right. So this this podcast will come after you make the announcement. I know it's embargoed so far, uh, but embargoed, embargoed, like define the embargo. You're you're not talking about it. How do you know about it if I'm not talking about it? Uh, This is this. This comes from your PR man, David. Uh, (laughs) I say that I I use that word very, very loosely there. But uh, what 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 is this project that uh, that you're going to open up and how 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 could it change what's going on there? The thing is that, you know, I mean, uh, because David Chapman and I have worked in collaboration for the last, I don't know, five or six years. And when we realized that this essential service was missing in the area and we sat down together and kind of visioned what we could create that would help the people we didn't want to be a band-aid we wanted to be something more if you think of like a spa and the kind of people that go to spas why don't we create something for the homeless that's like a wellness center where they can come in and be treated with dignity and receive the you know maslow's needs of like you know food and sleep but also to have you know specialized staff there that you know, have a background in addictions, in sexual assault, psychologists, you know, kind of like a one-stop shop where everywhere else in Montreal you are barred from, but here you can walk through and we will welcome you. And being on the streets is incredibly difficult. And after year after year of being on the streets, it makes you resilient. So we are calling it Resilience Montreal because we're honoring that resilience. And um, I've been working with the city and I have been chasing funders. And, you know, I literally wrote a letter to Secretary des Affaires which is the French division of, of, of Indian Affairs here. And this is their portfolio. And I wrote a very strong letter saying, these are the people you're supposed to be helping. This is what we are offering. Can you fund us? And the money is coming in. So it's, this is how it's going to be a reality as it's happened. Yeah. I'm going to be the, I'm working with, um, uh, Nazareth, uh, community. So another woman that runs, uh, sort of a a homeless or a second stage housing for men and one for women. 
and um, the city of Montreal, and I got some private funders and secretary of the Fellow and a couple of other people, and um, we're going to build something really great for the time being until we need to find like a, another location. But um, I'm helping, uh, it's almost like a startup for me. I'm going to put it together. I'm going to go back to the shelter. I'm going to make sure that the right people are running it. I'm going to meet with them on a monthly basis, make sure that things are going smoothly as possible. And then eventually, you know, we'll have our own governance and create a board of directors and it'll continue. But it, something needs to happen, needs to happen now. And it actually should have happened months ago. You can't wait on some of these things like like authorities might might want. So yeah. In the in the spirit of of uh, taking it into that kind of extra step of of actually helping and being part of the solution, is there you know what what can listeners do? Is you know where should they put their energy or their resources? How can people get involved? Well, I mean, I know this is this is goes very broad, right? I mean, this goes all around the country. So, I mean. If people are interested in helping what's happening in Montreal, then look up the organizations that are doing the work because we're always um, underfunded. But wherever y'all are, (laughs) you know, I would um, help your community organizations as well. And if you see someone that's on the street, see them as resilient. And instead of walking by them and ignoring them, not giving them eye contact, say hello, offer them food. You don't have to give them money. Give them like a cup of coffee or food. Or if you know of resources, offer them in the area. Because nobody wakes up one morning and says, oh, I think I'm going to be homeless today. It's something I've always wanted to be. Like people who are on the streets, there's a reason. There's a history there. Um, And I think you need to be kind. And I notice that when I am kind to someone on the street, because sometimes I walk through the uh, through the Atwater area and I see people that I know and I'll stop and I'll I'll go to McDonald's and I'll I'll get them something to eat and I'll have a conversation with them and then someone else will follow will will show up who I don't know and do the same thing and it's almost like a learned behavior if you're if you treat people nicely other people will do it if you ignore people everyone will ignore we need to stop ignoring all of that is just easy and free and uh, is sort of basic good person 101 but worth uh worth worth remembering and being reminded of uh i can't thank you enough for going through the the hard work of of uh doing what sonia asked you to do and and uh, doing the work you do and and especially for talking to me on uh on indigenous people's day in (laughs) in the united states um like i said thank you so much thank you the Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. The CBC did a tremendous mini-documentary called Becoming Nakuset that she helped produce and which is getting noticed this year in film festivals all around the country. It is searing and good. I will put a link in the show notes. Next week, it is Vodka Soda with one of the world's premier interpreters of Freddie Mercury's singing and stage presence. He's a Montreal native. He's a big star in Europe in particular, and I have an unusual personal connection to his life and career. Singer Johnny Zatilny in Montreal. We will meet you there.